cannot believe that this administration would have ever been elected four years ago if we had known then what we know today. But we are entering, we are entering a new era in which we must, as Americans, demand stature and size in our national leadership. Leadership which is open and leadership which is receptive to the problems of all Americans. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the podcast that strives to musically engage all Americans and, and beyond. I think we do that with the with the mix of stuff that's on here. That's very aggressive. Don't you think engaged is like, you know, <laughs> you're part of a gear system or, you know, that, you know, disengaged becomes a negative Maybe engaged is one of those ugly public radio words that's hung over still that I need to get rid of. Well, mm. it's in, it's in the it's in the <laughs> wedding world a lot, right? Oh, to become to become engaged. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't I don't plan on uh, doing that. Shout out to Dell. We don't participate in patriarchal structures like marriage. Testify. That's that that's a different uh, uh, opus. Fifty years <laughs> old, still undefeated. <laughs> speaking speaking of which. Um, uh, I want to shout out uh, Robin from Maine, who sent me this really nice uh, message um, about Triloquy and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And uh, he was he told me to make sure uh, that I was taking it easy on you because, you know, when you when you when you make it to 50, you know, there's something to celebrate there as we we cheers. Did did we not? We did. We did. And cheers again. Bravo. You did it. Thanks a lot, man. Um, Welcome to the 68th opus of the Triloquy podcast. So great to have you here. Um, In addition to shouting out um, Rob and I want to send a special shout out uh, to the Sphinx organization. Um, This opus of Triloquy is brought to you in part by Sphinx. I'm announcing their virtual gala coming up here in a couple weeks. Uh, Today's guest, uh, Mr. Carlos Simon, uh, is going to talk a little bit about that virtual gala, a bit of his music um, and many other things in the third movement uh, as he takes a stand. Um, how how re- that was a recent interview for you though, wasn't it? Wasn't that just in the last couple of days? Oh, with with Carlos Simon, yeah, right. I did that today actually, earlier today. So, so this is hot. Yeah, this is still still cooling. Yeah, yeah, and he has some music that that's pretty hot too that I can't uh, w- wait to share. Uh, I also wanted to shout out Scott, all of our sister and brother podcasts out there. I feel like I've been on a little bit of a press tour, uh, explaining myself to everybody. So <laughs> shout out to uh, Classical Gab Fest. Uh, shout out to a uh, conversation for adults <laughs> special shout out to uh, jimmy israel i had an especially uh, great time there uh, shout out to opera box score um, out of chicago i also want to shout out the long long foundation uh with whom i uh, did some work uh last week i did a social media takeover i kind of uh, took them into the world of garrett mcqueen the things i do all day and then the following day i, I did, uh, did an interview um, with uh, one of their featured artists. So uh, on Instagram Live, I had never done an Instagram Live. So, you know, even that they, they've got me, the, the 33-year-old, you know, looking like the old man in front of some of these people. Nice, yeah. How does that feel? <laughs> to not know what's going on for yeah. a minute. Um, I, uh, I've, I've, uh, I've also been on a very intense uh, interview tour. Um, Radar and I are deep deep into the the intricacies of man's best friend and what that actually implies 
So you're talking about just um, spending more and more time together. Well, he he believes that that sort of a identification for him uh, implies lesser or a sidekick role. Did he tell you and, that? And uh, that's what I'm gathering. <laughs> you know, we have we have very much a Han Solo Chewy relationship okay. going on. So um, basically what I'm saying is I've hit the spot in this pandemic where I'm having full-on conversations with myself. So, um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm wondering what's going to happen when I, get, when I finally pick a fight. With yourself? Yeah, who's going to win that? It'll be like that scene in um, Liar Liar. I'm kicking my ass, do you mind? <laughs> Look at us already at it. Listen, sorry. Okay. I also wanted to shout out before we got to the first movement, um, the Schubert Club. Uh, I, I interviewed um, Lawrence Brownlee, if you know who that is, mm-hmm. you know, phenomenal uh, tenor. Um, so, so yeah, um, just you know, my way of saying a uh, shout out to all of the sister and brother organizations. You know, lots of work out there, lots of support. Um, I really appreciate it. I already mentioned that. Uh, Carlos Simon um, is going to be the uh, third movement guest today. Um, in the uh, downbeat for today, I, we, I haven't even talked about that yet. Um, you heard uh, Miss the late uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, the first woman uh, to run uh, for president, a, a black woman, but also you know the first woman. Um, when you know she talks about um, you know something being good, leadership that is good equitable, you know, whatever word you want to put in there for all Americans. That's something that um, I'm going to go into a little bit in the triloquy um, today. But there's also um, a political implication uh, to the movement, the music we put in the second movement. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, Shostakovich, um, a black composer named Ulysses K. There's all kind of stuff uh, coming up. How how many minutes are we yet? I hate when we spend a lot of time in the announcements. We are five minutes deep. Okay, okay, here we go. Let's check our accidentals. (laughs) I need to, I guess, put a natural by this. Um, last, the last opus of Triloquy was titled Kobayashi Maru. And that is from a line that I used talking to Todd Steed that ended up in the, in the trash bin. On uh, the recycle bin. It didn't quite make the cut. But, you know, we, we talked with Todd for over an hour. You oh, know? yeah. We already yeah. have the people here long enough. So, um, Okay, so, <laughs> yeah, let me let me just go ahead and get to it. Um, if you're not old enough to remember Star Trek II, The Wrath I'm raising of Khan, my hand right now, everyone. Okay, so uh, it's there, but it's also in an episode of The Office between Dwight and New Dwight. Okay. Okay, where they, where <laughs> yeah. they, where they talk about um, basically, the Kobayashi Maru is a training exercise that they put Starfleet commanders through that has no way to win. No matter what direction that you, you go in, something happens that you can't get out of it. And Kobayashi Maru was the name of the ship that was in distress that's used in the exercise. Oh, so an exercise that's impossible to solve, but... Right. But everybody goes through it, and the only way to get out of it is to cheat. And uh, I was talking about how right now I am in a Kobayashi Maru situation, you know, um, at work, you know, because we're still doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my quote on your termination um, really pissed some people off. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. And, um, but I'm going to say this right now. I said what I said, and I am ready to be proven wrong on that time frame because it seems even further out to me now 
but based on what has been happening. But yeah, I mean, but, but, as, but as we said earlier, before we cut on the mics, people are hearing your just give in to it. And, and I think that's the issue, like saying it's 10 to 15 years down the line. That may be true, but that doesn't mean we can't challenge and, and try to change what you see as this reality. Yeah, I that's wish what I'm saying. Yeah, I sure wish that people could have been there in the interview because we were like, oh, yeah, I mean, this, you know, the, the everything moves very, really slow. I had no idea what what portion she was going to use. What I was hoping that she would use mm-hmm. is that part where I said the la- the worst thing that you can do to a person who has been advocating for change for most of their adult life is say, okay, I hear you and we need more time. Because isn't that exactly what I was advocating for? And the only th- and, and I know that it is irritating and is and it's a terrible way to advocate. But we right, right, but still we shouldn't give up for the sake of things taking time. Yeah, you know, but that's, that's all that's yeah, all I'm saying. That's then that's not what I was saying with that quote. Are you upset about it or something? <laughs> I took some heat. Sure. I raised sure. I raised some eyebrows. Well what do they say about um, being in the kitchen and heat and all that sort of thing, huh? Yeah, I'll go sit on the porch. Man. <laughs> um, that's a long way from Kobayashi Maru. Who uh who who composed the music for all of that Star so it's not Star Wars, it's Star Trek. Correct. Do you know the uh, the name of the composer or composers behind Star Trek? I don't. I, I, I looked it up real quick. So uh, it says uh, Dennis McCarthy, Ron Jones, and Jay Chataway. So, you know, maybe uh, you can't speak to which of these men um, wrote some of the most famous, you know, lines from Star Trek. But there's there's some iconicism around some Star Trek music, right? Oh, yeah, that theme for sure. And there's variants on it that's threaded throughout the films, you know different fanfares or marches or whatever. So yes, um, a natural dare. Um, we're definitely going to talk about um, the uh, sort of uh, Daniel Elder saga, which everyone has been throwing around social media. Excuse me, this this I'm drinking some coffee to try to settle uh, dinner a little bit. Um, so we're going to talk about Daniel Elder and all of that. Uh, the, I've gotten a lot of messages about, oh, I, ho- I hope you address that. But um, before we went there, I wanted to just acknowledge um, what's been going on with uh, Laura St. John. So um, if you don't know, um, a while back, months ago, maybe a year or more now, it, it's hard to keep up with time. Mm-hmm. Um, she um, made sexual abuse allegations against folks um, at the school she went to. And of course, you know, the unfortunate truth is that when, you know, women have the courage to come forward, there are all of these questions. There's everything but belief for them. So, you know, she had to go through all of that. Um, A few days ago, uh, September 23rd, it says here, um, uh, an article came out with the headline, Top Music School Finds Sexual Abuse Allegations from Violinists Credible. So after all of this time, after all of that heartache, you know, the, the sleepless nights, the nightmares, the de- you know, I, I, I don't mean to, you know, apply any emotions to her experience, but I'm just saying, you know, just imagining the, the very difficult time it is to go through not only sexual abuse, that's the big part, but also it, it being public and it being dragged into headlines and all this stuff. So how um, does it impact your career, exa- your, your practice, your, you know, everything? Um, I don't want to go too much into it um, because I'm actually 
um, asking uh, Laura St. John onto the show to, to talk about um, some some things. Not not only that, probably not mainly that, but um, since since she, I, since I plan on um, asking her on, having her on, I wanted to you know just give her the opportunity to go into as much or as little as she wanted to without we two men here <laughs> digging in, into this. Right, but this go this just goes to show you how time is distorted because I thought it was even longer than months ago I thought it was like years ago that 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 first that there were rumblings of that well I well I, it happened years ago uh, okay my my, my under, it being a headline at least in front of my eyes wasn't all of that long ago for the first time that's what I'm saying right but it's just my time is so distorted right the, the pandemic and everything I don't even know where, where this is Monday yeah today is Monday we record on Mondays here we go um yeah, so um, huge um, shout out um, and so much support. A, a huge sharp uh, to Laura St. John. Uh, again, the courage it takes to you know come forward and and to be public about that thing, especially um, at an institution like the one that you know she went to, that she was she was connected to. So many uh, in, incredible uh, recordings and performances out there by Laura St. John. Here's uh, here's one of my faves. So uh, my homie Eric over in uh, Seattle, uh, he said, today we might have to premiere the double flat. Have you, <laughs> have you heard of it? Do, do, you, do you know the concept of a double flat? I don't. Help I just, me out. And, and, just, and I don't want to turn this into a music theory lesson for everyone. But basically, when you're talking about Western music um, and scales, Every scale is supposed to have every letter, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, you know, or, right. or whatever, whichever right. one you're starting on. So for some scales, when you, start in, when you start adding in accidentals, for that to work, for every letter to be in the scale, some notes require double flats or, or, or more often than not, double sharps. So, you know, you'll have an, you know, E double sharp that actually sounds like an F sharp, but in the context of that scale, in that key, it's an E double sharp. Okay. Or in the way that an A double flat, you know, sounds to the ear like a G, but because of the key, it's an A. So, so anyway, shout out to all of my uh, music theory teachers, Paula Turner, especially uh, from high school, who first um, introduced me to the concept of double flat. So, and also shout out to Eric um, from uh, Seattle Symphony. This uh, this article, this blog by Daniel Elder is getting a double flat from me. So we've been talking. I feel like a few weeks now about some of the backlash, the uh, the so-called white lash connected to equitable work um, mm-hmm. in the arts um, and in classical music. Um, his article, um, and, and the only reason I'm naming him um, is because I think it's very important for people to find this and read this blog just to understand the realities of what's of, of what's going on out here. So the title of the blog is called Equity Silences the Muse. Now that, that title in itself is a little violent, a lot violent. For those who are (laughs) unfamiliar with violent in this case, why do you choose that word? Because um, when we, you know, and and I'm thinking about the Black Panthers when I say that, you know, uh, one of the things that they really fought for, the first, you know, Black Panther uh, Party, was that equal education 
was violent and that it didn't set up young black kids um, to, to go out into this world and, and work or, or, or do whatever they wanted to do. You know, lack of nutrition is violent because that is, you know, um, keeping nutrients from, you know, the black body and, and, and killing off black people. So when I call that title violent, what I mean is um, by naming equity and equitable work, as something bad, as something that silences the muse, as he titled here, you're you're taking away the rights of so many people, um, not only their access to music, but their music and 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 their art form. So when so when I say it's violent, um, that's what it means. I I don't think it's playing nice to um, attempt to shut the doors of so-called classical music that we've been working tirelessly to to kick open. I was just making sure that. I knew how you were how you were calling it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm I'm not going to go through all of this um, honestly, but you know, it's it, again, it's a lot of the language of the erasure of the white male and um, the argument that I've seen from other people's blogs and responses and, and and all that sort of thing was that his music was a little mediocre anyway. So the fact that people aren't booking you Shame. for things means that <laughs> I think that's just a straight up read of you know. Uh, so the, the reason that people aren't booking for you or putting your music on or whatever is because there's better music out there. Um, I'm going to be real with you, Scott. I didn't pay much, and, th- and this is no shade, I didn't pay that much attention to choral music anyway before moving to Minnesota. I mean, was choral music your jam back in um, no. Nebraska? No. Now, I obviously appreciate it and have, have grown in appreciation for it since moving to, to choir land here. But, you know, in a, in a field that's so crowded, especially with COVID, you know, you can't have live choirs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not the time to, um, as a white male composer of choral music, to talk about folks are trying to erase you, especially when there are whole black choirs out here that are doing phenomenal work. You know, think about Exigence from uh, Sphinx. Oh, that was such a performance. You know, that was there, amazing. There's stuff like that that exists. Yeah. And we have this person, you know, complaining because his stuff isn't making it. Uh, I, I can't. I just, I, hashtag, I just can't. I can't so even. when pieces like this come out, I add three months into my calculus on how long um a transition would take when when defense pieces like this come out i'm like okay it's going to it's going to take x number of months to deprogram or or uh disinfect whatever uh, reaction comes from this piece let me read a little excerpt here for the people Um, (laughs) The end of this one paragraph says, in this new age, quote, there is no such thing as sexism towards a man or racism towards a Caucasian since their male and white privileges shield them from vulnerability to such attacks. The new philosophy sagely retorted. All debate was closed. How very expedient for these new supporters of equity. This new age of diversity seemed destined to be defined by an unavowed double standard. So, you know, more of what we've been, you know, looking at from other folks. Uh, says the man whose next blog post is why I removed commenting. Yeah. And didn't you? Was that the next one? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, shout out to uh, I want to shout out Jonathan Gibbs, who put me onto this. He called me on Saturday and he was like, listen. You need to talk about this. And I got a couple messages from people saying, please just drag him out in the triloquy. I decided to put him here in the accidentals because we have other things to talk about in the triloquy. Um, You know, 
I was I was talking about maybe last week or the week before I brought up a blog and I didn't name the author. So I just want to, you know, circle back around and reiterate. I'm naming this author Daniel Elder because I really want everyone to go out here if he doesn't delete it or block it and read what folks like me and Scott are pushing back against, you know, the changes we're trying to make. When Scott says, you know, changes are 10 to 15 years in the future, what he's thinking about is the existence of pieces like this. So um, the, the uh, there's a link to this in the description. Um, if you're on some other platform, just Google Daniel Elder, Equity Silences the Muse, and please be a part of understanding that there is some real shit being thrown at um, equitable work and people doing that equitable work, especially in this so-called classical music. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so obviously we aren't going to share any of his music here, <laughs> but is there any choral music that uh, <laughs> uh, you, you do sort of gravitate toward? We, we, we mentioned Exigence, right? And, and actually Exigence um, is uh, performing at the uh, virtual gala uh, for uh, Sphinx that's coming up. So oh, cool. uh, how, how about we give uh, the people a little taste of uh, nice. Exigence here? For those of you who haven't heard uh, Thursday of last week, petitions were turned into NPR management for the current and for classical Minnesota public radio to unionize and with the hope that they would uh, voluntarily accept that petition. So, of course, you know. I was, you know, in on it, doing my part and keeping things under wraps and, you know, uh, being a part of the conversations, you know, being vocal about uh, what I would want, you know, if I were, if, you know, as a member of that union uh, there. Um, I, I'm going to get into that a little bit more, uh, my feelings uh, in the second movement uh, and, and maybe in the, and I think in the triloquy uh, a little bit, but um, just for folks who don't understand um, the implications surrounded that, Scott. I wonder if you could explain um, why this is uh, significant, especially in this moment. You know, uh, uh, employees at uh, Minnesota Public Radio, American Public Media, uh, seeking to unionize. Well, I think if you check out the social media presence of NPR music unions, it will give you the entire scope of uh, the reason that the petition was given. But um, I can tell you that having a say, a larger say in how we move forward in this time and in this medium was front and center for classical Minnesota Public Radio, as well as uh, diversity in the broadcast and the hiring practices. However, the current got deep. They got specific and start and they said that they felt and, and, and I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I'm, not, spill, I'm yeah. not spilling any tea by saying this because it's online and it's in their petition for unionization that uh, it was sent, essentially it was centering whiteness and that uh, voices of the people of color was, was being minimized and, and that of women as well. And, um, and that was very clear in their portion of the petition. What was the, well, well, 
I, I, I think I'll, I think I'll save that for, 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 because, you know, full, full disclosure, there's a level of frustration that I felt learning about this. And now when you're talking about, you know, the specifics uh, that the current, you know, is, is getting into when it comes to some of this equitable work to not uh, hear about those specifics, to not see those specifics on the classical side of things. It's just a little, you know, it, it's a little crunchy. I don't, I don't have it memorized. Like I said, the whole uh, petition from each entity is at NPR music unions both on instagram and on twitter and uh if they have a web presence i don't know about it well you know uh unionization um isn't you know going everywhere as far as uh public radio but there are definitely certain uh conversations that are uh starting to spring up um and one of them is ownership i want to shout out uh julian wiley who writes for current um, he, he wrote a piece that included me that talked about um, Triloquy and, you know, the ownership of this intellectual property um, that we have. Of course, you know, as um, I love to uh, bring up, you know, uh, Joe Button in the Spotify contract, which is now done, you know, so, mm-hmm. so they're separated, you know. So, 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 so many people are talking about the ownership of intellectual property, and that includes, you know, uh, lately – uh, public uh, radio stations and, and, and public media, you know, institutions. So um, I was a part of that. It, it was a really interesting article. Um, and when I think back on uh, Triloquy, you know, I'm grateful, you know, as I said in my official statement following my termination, I'm really grateful that we, we have a way to own this intellectual property. But that's just not the case, unfortunately, for everyone. You know, I, I wonder if there are um, bits of intellectual property that you would hate to go without, you know, if, 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 and when, whenever, you know, you decide to separate from, uh, from APM. See, I, I look at it a little bit differently than you do. I mean, obviously being able to take the first season of Triloquy was huge. Yeah. That was a, that was a, but other, but other than Triloquy, I mean, you've been right. with the company for 14 years, right? Uh, actually October will make 14 years. That's right. Um, but I, I, I think about hop notes, and if I were to try to start it again, there's so much that I would do differently. Mm-hmm. And, I would, and I would treat that as like, the, I, I don't know, we were talking about Stravinsky, and he's in the, going to be in the second movement, so let's talk a little bit about the firebird, you know, the idea of springing from the ashes of something else, you know, something that's a clearer vision of, of what you had in mind or, mm-hmm. or maybe truer to the idea that you initially pitched. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about Shostakovich in the second movement. Did, but I, the say point, Str- did I say Stravinsky? Yes. <laughs> but, but the, but the yeah. point, yeah, but, but, but the point still stands. Um, you know, and, and even beyond um, public media um, organizations, uh, the idea of, you know, ownership and creative autonomy um, is coming up with um, the Joe Rogan podcast, which, of course, was, which was given a hundred million dollars from Spotify. And, you know, just to just to frame this quickly, you know, I think, again, these are really important conversations because there are podcasts popping up everywhere. And even, you know, in, in classical music, even in the hardest quarters of classical the real Mozart corners of classical music, their podcast, you know, so I think it's important for us all to sort of look at what's happening on the big scale because, you know, that sort of thing, you know, definitely impacts the smaller guys. So real talk, though, if you gave somebody $100 million, wouldn't you want to be able to have a little bit of editorial muscle over that if you handed out that money? 
I mean, yeah, if I if if I had a hundred million dollars, but <laughs> but if I'm handing someone a hundred million dollars, how much money am I expecting to, to get back? You know, and and I think that's where the argument is. If I'm expecting, you know, a trillion dollars back, you know, as the creator, what I'm saying is, well, if you've worked it out for, for you to, to get over on the money side, I'm going to okay. do what I want content wise. Uh, OK, know? so re- again, real talk. Would you take. $100 million to do a podcast if whoever was giving you that money said that they were going to have editorial control. That would be difficult for me because I don't, I wouldn't want to be painted into the corner to be anti-black on my podcast or, or to say something that I think is hurtful toward my mission and, and, and toward my cause. So I know I'm, you know, it sounds okay. like the Miss America answer right now, but, so, but that's the truth. $200 million. There is no amount of money that's going to get me on. Okay. I mean, that's like asking me. So let me ask you, would would you be a Tucker Carlson on Fox News for $100 million? Lord, no. $200 million? No. Okay, so, you know, it's it, it, that's the same thing. When it, Well, I think it's the same thing anyway. Something similar. It's similar. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, so, uh, so what was I talking about? So with Joe, with Joe <laughs> Rogan. You know, the argument, you know, he was given this hundred million dollars, you know, and and I think I read and I'll, I'll, I'll post a, a, a link in the description. Um, folks talking about they're going to strike people at Spotify saying they're going to strike if they aren't given the right to, um, you know, have some editing rights over his podcast. And I think where this is coming from is, you know, he um, you know, there are reports of him, uh, ha- him having given out false information, yeah. you know, having guests that are a bit problematic and X, Y and Z. So, you know, I, I think that conversation to circle this all the way back around again shout out to julian wiley at uh, current um i think it's important to have that conversation of ownership as we are all creating content whether that's you know recording an album uh, recording a podcast or anything you know and if you're doing it in conjunction with an organization you should at least think about what would happen to that content um if you go you know if if you go um you know, uh, in in preparation, not really in preparation for this, but, you know, just over the weekend, thinking about this Joe Rogan situation, I went back and watched some old episodes of Fear Factor on YouTube. Were you, were you a Fear Factor watcher? No. Really? What? So you just, your your stomach gets turned easily or you don't like seeing people covered in spiders? And I, I, I just, it's the pornographication of <laughs> discomfort. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and that's not me. And this is why I think it's great that it's there for people who like that, but I don't. I'm not gonna go seek it out. So you are you are throwing out numbers at me. You know uh, how much money would it take? So let's say you know I, I remember one of the fear factor challenges was that you had to, um, and if you have a sensitive stomach, maybe turn off your earbuds for a second. Having to eat horse rectum. In a barn where there are horses. So first of all, I get gagged in there by the smell. You know, <laughs> when when the fair comes through town and Dell wants to go into, I get gagged by being in there. And then I have to eat something that I'm sure is horrible. So let's say for you, fifty thousand dollars. Can you do it? <laughs> you thinking? Wow. Fifty thousand dollars on the table. Well, you know what calamari is, right? Okay, so, it kind of looked like it too. Really, a big version of it, though. I, it, it's you. You gotta. <laughs> you can see. It's them putting you in that barn that messes with your head, right? <laughs> because you could get your. You could get in the right headspace to eat. Right, but that. it's the barn with with the with the horses neighing and everything. Okay, uh, question. 
did my shoes come off in the plane crash? Okay. No, 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 no. no here, no. Here's my, here's here's my question. How long do you have to keep it down? Forever. Well, so, at least for the rest of the day. Or while, while you're while there in the bar. looking. Okay, I'm just curious if... Yeah, you're just trying to get the terms. If, yeah, I just want to see if there's fine print. Anyway, we kind of chased the rabbit off the trail there. Um, Joe Rogan to uh, Fear Factor. Anyway, um, content creators. Uh, I, I said this on uh, Twitter, uh, and I said this on Facebook today. Content creators own your shit. It's very important that you do that. It's more important than anything. Um, I can actually make a musical connection between... Um, uh, connection between Fear Factor and classical music. You ready? Yep. Okay. Eating weird and gross things. The last time I uh, saw a performance of Engelbert Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, uh, the last scene um, is this, you know, children's chorus, and it's all cheery and happy sounding, and um, this is after the witch, evil witch, had been pushed into the oven, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the version I saw, during this song, the cooked witch, you know, comes out of the oven and it's made of something that the kids can actually eat. So as you have this cheerful orchestral music and the curtain is coming down after two and a half hours of watching uh, an opera, you're watching kids smear what looks like cooked witch all over their faces like they're mm. eating it. I really enjoyed that. That was that was an opera moment I will always remember. $50,000. <laughs> so here's a little bit of the conclusion of Engelbert Huppertig's Hansel and Gretel to get us into the second movement of today's opus. So, Scott, since the last time we recorded, um, we had the birth date, the born day of one of my favorite composers, top five, maybe not number five, Dmitry Shostakovich. So um, I'm going to take the time to talk about a little of his music in this second uh, movement and also um, the music of a a black composer, a black American composer who um, has a connection uh, to Shostakovich and actually um, inspired this week's uh, photo for the podcast. So we're going to get into that uh, in a bit. Um, But the first thing I I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned, you know, Alicia Keys, another one of my faves. um, That's uh, who I thought you were going to lead with. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, her, her, her album came out. And um, I had I, I listened to some of the tracks already because, um, you know, there, there were singles and, and that sort of thing. But the one I keep going to is called So Done. And every time I listen to it, Scott, I think about you because of the, the sound of, of the guitar in there. It sounds like it, it could come right out of your basement. Because I'm so, so done. So what my so what my question for you is, you know, between this, um, there's actually a, another song um, uh, on the album that I think uh, we we had tried, you know, uh, with the mics off before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can go back to the guitar line in um, the baby's uh, song, Rockstar. Rockstar. Um, it seems like. Uh, at least to my ear, guitar is really getting into you know the world of hip hop and R&B. Just it's having a little renaissance in it. Is it uh, is it inspiring your practice or your or, or or what you try down in your basement? Well, it just makes me feel like some of the lyrics that I came up with and I wasn't necessarily able to come up with a melody. Maybe I could zingspiel them, you there know, you go. Uh, and and have my own sort of. There you go. No, dude. No, dude. Uh, yeah. Middle-aged white guy. What would what would that be? Down, down. It broken hip hop. 
<laughs> uh, bu- okay. Busted ass rhymes. <laughs> but, bu- busted ass rhymes. You, you, you want to you continue? Or? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of my niche. I'm trying to think of what little pocket I might occupy. Anyway, so shout out to Alicia Keys and shout out to the guitar players. Y'all are, y'all are out here doing it. And I actually didn't have this planned out, but um, the, the the next song, a song that everyone I'm sure knows, um, features some really interesting guitar playing. So you talked about in the last movement, um, the the union and, and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with my frustrations with that, I mean, whatever, it didn't last long. But, you know, you, you have moments when you're lying in bed and you're just kind of, you know, tight about something. I just missed it. And yep. um, right. And, uh, you know, for some reason, one of the songs that popped into my head is Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know. So let me ask you, Scott, so because you were good and grown when this song came out, what lady in your life had you screaming that song in your car by yourself? There wasn't one, man. Oh, okay. You just playing cool. You just play it cool. Um, what do you I, think about what? What do you think? What do you think about the song? I mean, what? What I was a. Uh, I was talking to Dell earlier. I, oh, I, maybe I was saying this to you. Um, that song seems to be one that sort of superseded culture and genre, and we all just knew that song. I mean, it, it was it was that popular, right? It seemed to follow the formula that a lot of uh, top forty. Uh, chart toppers were getting where every time you turned on MTV, you, the video was on at some point, uh, and you go, "Oh crap!" So you flip over to VH1, and there's the and they're just starting it. You get in your car, and it's on the radio. So they ran it into the ground. Yeah, <laughs> it, it it got on my nerves in short order. It's and know, it's not her best work. No, sure, yeah, but you know what? What I found just so interesting was that even the most overplayed songs, if you you know let it lie for about ten, maybe even fifteen years, however many years ago that song came out, and you go back to it, you kind of remember and understand why it was played so much because it is a it is a good song. I know people make that argument about Beethoven and stuff, but sure, <laughs> but 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 I think that's something that you can apply um, to that song. So yeah, I'm 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 not all that tight anymore, but I just enjoyed revisiting that that blast from the past uh i would like to shout out my favorite track by alanis morissette called uninvited okay now that is raw I'm going to have to take another listen to that one. That, you know, as I said, you know, You Ought to Know is one that sort of rose up against, you know, everything else despite genre. But I wasn't so much into Alanis Morissette specifically. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna uh, take a second look at that uh, Uninvited. Maybe I'll try to get it on my keyboard or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, of course, it's, I can't go. You know, if you're playing the Triloquy uh, drinking game and you're waiting <laughs> for me to mention Beyonce, here we are. So, in my, you know, revisit back to that tune, you ought to know, I remembered, oh my gosh, Beyonce did it. So that's the one that I'm going to share with y'all today. How do you think Beyonce did with that tune? Oh, she killed it. Um, better than Alanis did. Well, I, uh, you said it. I you did. Said it. No, 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 no. And I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand by it. But 
Beyonce's her breath controlled. You know, the, I I didn't like the breathy delivery. It was that, live, and she was dancing and running around. And, right, but in the studio version that Alanis put out, sure. there's all this gasping, and mm. I get what you're trying to say with it, and and I. But it, if you're as angry as she was, you know. Um, saying, you know, I, I think that maybe the gasps are a part of the, this is the You Ought to Know Breakdown yeah, I, podcast. I'm wow. sure. <laughs> I'm sure it is part of it. And, and I didn't care for it. Remember when she was God in the movie Dogma? I do. That was great. That was the last time they made a white lady God for a while, because since then it was brothers. Look out. I mean, when, when you talk about God, I think of Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, shall, shall we get into the, um, into the classical? portion of this movement or do you have another tune to bring up no um the one that i wanted to bring in is by chris rogerson all uh, oh, right yeah. yeah he's a young composer and this piece called Thirty Thousand days was written in 2017 and it really it, it it really warmed me up to listen to it because we're all having this trouble with marking time right now. We mm-hmm. feel we feel unstuck in time, if I can quote Vonnegut for a minute. Sure. Um, you talked about how not having a gig, you have to write stuff into your calendar, do this, work mm-hmm. on that or whatever, because otherwise, you know, oh my gosh, three days has slipped by and how is it already Monday? Yeah. And at the same time, you're wondering, how is it only Monday? Right. So this strange a way of marking time in this pandemic has really messed with my mind. And then to read about this piece called 30,000 Days, Chris said his father was a statistician and he liked to think of life as a 30,000 day journey. Mm -hmm. And whenever him and his sister would reach one of these marks, this, his father would call them and talk to them, uh, tell them stories about his own 10,000th day or 20,000th day or something like that. And Chris said that the, the biggest impact that it had on him was having the realization of the value of looking at life from a broader perspective. So that's what he did with 30,000 Days. He said he explores this idea of life's three stages. And, you know, we talk about composers, you know, in their early period and their, their middle period and whatever the, the case may be. But he said he tried to evoke the joy, innocence, and sweetness of youth. The second is struggle, coldness, fury, and finally is acceptance, resignation, loss, and love. And it's it's really nice the way he threaded all these things together in it. It must be something that um, people have listened to this piece and explored because um, I've in one Google search I found ten thousand days old calculator. So have you already calculated your ten when your ten thousandth day was? I haven't. I think it was around like age twenty seven, isn't it? Something like that. And uh, my buddy, shout out to Mike Friedman in uh, I believe he's in Dayton, Ohio. He wrote in and he said that uh, right around 82 would be 30,000 days. And I said, hmm, then I'm, I'm, really, I'm really shooting for more like a 
27,000 day lifespan. Oh, but see, and see, the more you wish for that, you're going to make it to something like 50,000 days. So be Man, careful. don't do that. <laughs> I think, uh, so if you're saying around the age uh, 27, that would have been uh, 2014 for me. So that was when I was... Wow, was that when I got into radio? It must no, that was a little maybe that's when I got into the Knoxville Symphony. I don't know, but but for profound things to be happening at these markers, um, I think is I think is an interesting concept. So yeah, shout out to uh, shout out to that piece of music and uh, Chris Rogers, and that'll definitely be on the uh, Triloquy Tracks playlist. So be sure to check that out. Um, I wanted to spend uh, just a little time before we get in, into uh, uh, today's interview, uh, you know, honoring a, a bit of, of the canon. So um, when we talk about and, and, and bringing back up this Daniel Elder piece, OK, when we talk about erasing white men, um, that's a that's a farce because there's there's music of dead white men. Uh, whose is eternal and is and is still greatly celebrated by by many people. I think the kicker is, does that music matter still? Is there a relevance to the music? Can it be applied to today? So mm. when we talk about the music of Dmitry Shostakovich, I see that um, all over the place. Um, so you know, we as I mentioned, you know, uh, his birthday passes the last time uh, we recorded one of my favorite composers. So I wanted to take the opportunity um, to talk about uh, a really important piece of music of his, um, his Ninth Symphony. So when we talk about a Ninth Symphony, especially when it comes to Beethoven, what would you expect? What sort of piece of music? Well, a chorus and uh, some epic themes, Something and big, yeah, big fanfares, yeah, yeah. And that's actually what Shostakovich planned on, but you know, because of Soviet Russia, you know, and Stalin, Stalining, and and all of that stuff, you know, uh, it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, and in the fourth movement of this five movement symphony, there's uh, this music uh, that really exemplifies that reality uh, in a way that I think is very impactful. You have this heavy brass that's representing the, you know, the iron fist, the arm of the Soviet uh, government against one person who dares speak up um, against the regime. goes on you know you have more of that dialogue between heavy machine big machine and and individual and um you know in Shostakovich's sort of uh, you know twisted mind or or just raw reality um he transitions this you know solo bassoon this lone voice against the machine into sort of saying oh oh well might as well go to work I can't change anything Shostakovich never, as, at least as far as I know, wrote like a bassoon sonata or a bassoon solo piece of any sort, but he was definitely very friendly to the bassoon in his orchestral writing. 
um, playing that solo, the recording I actually shared, you know, with the uh, uh, University of Southern California Orchestra years ago, you know, really one of the the highlights of my life, a moment that I will uh, never forget. I will mm. always honor, you know, the story of Shostakovich. I, I uh, encourage everyone to uh, to read more about his story, story and the way that uh, he stood up against Stalin and, you know, how he eventually gave in or was he forced to join the uh, that regime or, you know, so it, there's an interesting story there. So um, I, I'm, I'm spending the time to bring him up and to just, you know, speak to my appreciation for his music um, as a way of saying to folks like Daniel Elder, it's not that we're trying to erase white men out of here. There is just a playing field that requires more than that mediocrity that got people along beforehand, you know, and this is not the triloquy. I don't want to turn this into that, but, you know, the music of Shostakovich, I mean, think about the connections of the parallels between, um, you know, uh, the Red Scare and, mm. you know, the Soviet Union and whatever you want to draw up and what's going on today. You know, the idea of fighting against the big machine as that movement of music um, portrays. So I don't know. Shout out to Dmitry Shostakovich. Rest in peace. Long live the music um, of Dmitry Shostakovich. Um now, you know, I always have to add in a little bit of blackness. So during the, um, as much as I can anyway, so during the Cold War, you know, the height of, of, of all this drama, a group of composers um, from America was sent to the Soviet Union as uh, ambassadors, as, as cultural ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was a black composer named Ulysses K. And when um, he returned to the United States from that uh, trip, um, he uh, came back with Shostakovich, and um, there's a photo. I, I want to uh, shout out uh, the folks at WBUR. I'll link the article that I read that enlightened me to this. Uh, when you know when Ulysses K returned, um, and Shostakovich was there, Ulysses K's daughter um, named Virginia. Um, met them, you know, uh, there, and there's this photo of a little girl, Virginia, you know, giving Shostakovich this bouquet of flowers. So, you know, even with, you know, this music from Western Europe that, you know, is by a dead white man but still speaks to me, you know, there's a there's a connection there that can be made to uh, blackness and black classical music. Um, what if we all worked as hard to really find those connections? You know, we talk about uh, white men talk about, oh, are you trying to erase us? Well, in what ways are you trying to uplift others? What connections can you help us find um, toward the goal of our more equitable programming, our more equitable view of so-called classical music? It's always there. It's just, it, do you want to take the effort uh, to do it, you know? That's a good point. Um, but also the fellow that was speaking at that forum where he was talking about how white men have are under siege or were um, uh, maybe, maybe another one of the things that we covered you know this, this story again right no so what I'm yeah what I'm what I'm saying is uh, was it an ACF uh, American Composers oh, a, Forum oh, a thing? town hall I was telling you about yeah, right yeah. right and so and the guy was coming up lamenting right, the fact right. that he was under siege well it, it just means that you're going to be <laughs> judged on the same yeah you know your work has to you can't ride on just being white anymore you're going to have to create some good art in fewer and fewer circles black people don't have to work three and four times as hard to be seen there, you know that our, our our art our content hopefully our content that we own you know again going back to the first movement is there um, to be consumed on this equal playing field of social media, the internet, 
virtual whatever you know it's it's all there so you know your stuff actually has to be worth a damn um you know and then um you know i can connect ulysses k to so many other things you know it's william grant still i believe who encouraged ulysses k to go to yale university and study with uh the composer paul hindemith who has a very specific sound you know if you're familiar with uh paul hindemith's metamorphosis yeah uh, symphonic metamorphosis is my jam and you know that sound really comes out um, in Ulysses K's music. So I wanted to um, just uh, present an example of that as it applies to his bassoon sonata. Uh, this recording actually features my teacher, uh, who you've met, Lacoli in Washington, Mark Inslee on piano. Um, just a little bit of this. Um, and if you're familiar with Paul Hindemith, um, I think you'll see how Ulysses K's music um, sort of sounds like it. All right, a lot of gabbing, so um, we're going to get into this uh, third movement. Um, again, a reminder of the Sphinx organization, uh, which we you know talk about so much on this uh, podcast. Huge shout out to Alpha Twerkin, who runs the ship over there. Their virtual gala um, is coming up on October fifteenth, I believe. If that's incorrect, the the correct date will be um, on on the website. Um, and a part of that. Um, performance uh, of that gala um, will uh, include performances uh, by the Exigence uh, Ensemble, which we've already uh, showcased um, in this opus, and also a performance of a work uh, by Carlos Simon, a, a black composer um, uh, born uh, and based down, I don't know if born, but based down in Atlanta, Georgia, a composer of all sorts of really um, phenomenal music. There's going to be one of his solo violin works uh, performed um, at this gala. Um, but to get us into my conversation with him, uh, I wanted to share with you um, a work of his called A Man. So Scott, a black composer who lives in Atlanta, and this piece of music, uh, this arrangement for Win Ensemble, it's called A Man. So what do you expect just right out of the gate? Exultation. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely got that, you know, bluesy, southern, you know, dare I say sexy feel written uh, 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 written um, and inspired in that, in that feeling of church, which uh, Carlos actually uh, goes into um, in our conversation. So here's a little bit of that. Um, definitely look up the full performance. There'll be there'll be a link to this specific performance uh, in the description um, of this opus. Um, but here's a little excerpt of the piece of music called "A Man" by uh, Carlos Simon as we get into my conversation with him. I come from a lineage, a four-generation lineage of Pentecostal preachers. You know, I'm a great starting my great-grandfather, born in 1896, and he he actually started um, a, a church organization which is based in you know Pentecostal uh denomination belief you know that the Holy Ghost you know it's, it's, yeah, it's amen. The coming yes. of the Holy Ghost that sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I, I was sort of reared in this tradition of, of, of Pentecostalism and, and expressionism in, in the church and worship services. And so, you know, uh, I wanted to encapsulate that experience as much as I could because I, I knew that people wasn't really, they weren't aware of, of, of this um, unique American experience. Uh, and so, like, I... 
I desperately wanted to capture the language, you know, without being a caricature or, you know, because you see these types of scenes where you're in the black church in movies and, you know, people are just, it, it wasn't genuine to me, you know, and I, I, I wanted to be sincere in my, my, um, in my piece. Amen. And so um, that is just a, an encapsulation of, of a, 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 a typical church service, you know, yeah. what I've experienced on on Sunday morning, um, three hour service into 12 minutes. At least, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's it's really based in that, you know, and, and I, I, it's so rich to me and, and, it, and I wanted people to experience the same thing. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, you know, making a caricature out of certain aesthetics and, and certain sounds, but because that's actually, you know, the next thing I had planned on asking you about. How do you take um, the experiences, the unique black American experiences that you've had, translate them into music without going into that area of uh, performative you know, blackness and, and, and making a caricature out of these uh, black aesthetics of jazz, gospel, blues, everything that you put into that piece and so many other of your pieces. Yeah, well, you know, I, I just, I feel like the work needs to be done on my part, you know, really trying to understand and dig deep. Um, you know, I did a lot of reading, you know, and a lot of research and, and some of the scholarly things to connect with um, my, my memory. Uh, of things um and so like um you know that just the certain things that i i chose not to do mm -hmm. uh you know easily that that last movement could have been the entire piece you know uh whereas just like jubilation and you know people clapping and, and the, the yeah. running bass line and you know that could easily have been the whole piece in itself but you know that's not all it was, you know, that, that moment there is, is a, just a small segment of this, of, of, of the experience. And, um, you have to build to that. You can't, it's more like evoking the spirit of God, you know, mm -hmm. it was very serious to me. That moment was very serious. Something you didn't take lightly. Um, and so, you know, when I see these things on TV and they're, they're, they're mimicking it, that it was real that that was not fake it was not an entertaining moment you know so you had to, so for me i wanted to i've always wanted to be sincere about um the things that i write and then and doing scholarly work and also really you know the hard work you know understanding and, and listening is, is this what i want to say um will someone be offended by this if uh if i release this and they heard it or you know it uh somebody when i say offended when i Offended, and if they were a part of this community, right? Would they be right. offended uh, by this type of music? Would be, would, in other words, would it be an appropriation? Right, um, right. Um, and it, so, and it's yeah. very important to make that point. People that are a part of that community, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I was so impressed um, by you know the the orchestration, or I, or I guess I should say the the bandstration of the uh, arrangement. Yeah. I heard you know uh, before um, I you know was sort of known as the guy who is always wearing the cape for black artistry, black so called classical music, and all that sort of thing. You know, I was really pushing to put um, new music and music by living composers. Out to the front, and um, even more specifically, music for band, for wind band. It's sort of this this uh, corner of the art form that we don't really spend as much time with as we do with the orchestra or chamber music or or the piano. Uh, do you have any specific affinities to to wind band or or, or music for wind ensemble? 
Um, you know what? That, honestly, that this form is new to me. You know, Ooh. Amen was my first band piece, actually. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, I, in high school, I heard the band, the marching band, that sort of thing. And I was, I grew to love it. But I never thought I would be writing for the, the ensemble just because it's so difficult. You know, the balance of just wind instruments is, it's hard to kind of capture, uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to balance. And you have to really know what you're doing. So I, I kind of strayed away from it for a while. And, and But I know the band world, you know, uh, as far as the new music, they're more a little more open to, to um, playing new music. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and so like more so than the orchestral world. Um, and so I knew this was the Amen in particular was a piece that could be done in this this band world, um, just because it, it's more reception towards new music. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question though. Oh no, that, that that's great. I, I think you're exactly right when when you talk about you know music for wind band and wind band people being you know more um, in tune with uh, newer music because that's what you know we play most of the time in in the wind band world. Uh, newer music. Um, I wonder if any of those challenges translate over um, into the orchestral world or maybe the, the uh, chamber music world uh, when, you, when you talk about incorporating new sounds and maybe even um, contemporary conversations like in the Elegy that you wrote um, not too long ago? Uh, you know, it's all one, uh, you know, piece of art. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, they all have different challenges and each piece has a different, um, uh, I, I, they, have, they all have different possibilities. And so, but, you know, I always, whenever I start a piece, it's always, you know, me just doing the, doing the scholarly work, of course, and the, what I want to say. And, and, and I just sit with that for, you know, several, several weeks, maybe even months. And, you know, before I even write a note. You know, mm -hmm. I, I just kind of sit with the idea and then I'd sit down at the piano and I improvise based on what I've what I've kind of digested. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah it's just like a, a brain dump after I, you know, do all the work here and just I go and I, I don't analyze anything. And it's just it sort of comes out naturally. And um, yeah, and that's the approach I take with every piece that I write. Uh, and so they're they're whether it's wind band, whether it's orchestra music, whether it's chamber or solo, you know, vocal music, yeah, any of these types of things, it's it's more. So you know, I'm I'm making my making room for the unexplained, if you yeah, know, the yeah, spiritual yeah. stuff that happens. It, I I think it's spiritual. People, other people may disagree with me, but I I think it's yeah, it's no other way to explain, you know, being able to capture these things in my head and whatever you know it's for me that that's just my experience but yeah um yeah, yeah. i want to i want to uh go a little deeper uh into this elegy uh that i've mentioned so for folks who don't know you know you wrote this um in honor of the late michael brown the late trayvon martin uh, and the late Eric Garner. Um, so you've already mentioned that, you know, a part of your process is just doing the scholarly work, sitting with yourself and having that spiritual moment. You know, what what was that experience um, as it related to this piece in particular? You know, is it internalizing pain? Is it internalizing hope? What is it? So when uh, the verdict dropped for Trayvon Martin, you know, I, I 
I was just shocked beyond belief, you know, like here's this man can get off scot-free and like it, it, it was just like it could happen to me as a black man. I was frustrated. I was angry. angry. I, I was, you know, was hurt. And, you know, Freddie Gray, when, when things, the riots happened in Baltimore mm -hmm. and I, I was watching this all on news on, on CNN and it's like, wow, this is, this is, um, I had, you know, I was torn up, you know, I, yeah. was, I was physically sick too. I felt sick when I was watching these things. So when I wrote Elegy, it was more of a therapeutic thing. I wanted to, to kind of get these emotions out and, and this really, really just, you know, detox, if you will, try to get the feelings out, you know? Um, and so, you know, it, it's the same thing, you know, I just kind of sat at the piano and, and, and played what I felt. Um, it was more in the moment, you know, I didn't, I, of course I was digesting all of these things on, on the via, via, uh, media and, and, and uh, social media and right. all these things. And, um, and, and it, it's, it, gosh, it, I mean, and, and to think, you know, now 2020, we're still in, still the, the names of that list has grown, have grown exponentially. You know, right. Right. Taylor, George Floyd, and, you know, just so many. And, and, and the piece itself um, still, for me, it still, still is therapy, you know, when I listen, go back and listen to it. And um, yeah, which is what I didn't expect to, for that sort of language to come out because it's very lush and, and harmonically speaking. And, but, you know, it, it's something that I, I guess at the moment was, was, was here, you know, and I just didn't want to, you know, bring that down, if you will. Okay, yeah, it's it's so interesting that you, you know, describe that as, you know, getting all of those feelings out. Um, what is your experience um, listening to it or, or maybe seeing it performed? Or, you know, has anyone talked to you about the experience of performing it with that in mind? You know, feelings out for you, but maybe feelings in for audiences and performers. Sure, yeah. I remember, um, gosh, one performance that happened this last, last February at the uh, Sphinx, um Connect conference, um, and uh, they performed the, the one of the performed the piece and um, Red Shoe Company, and you know we at the end of the concert we're I'm greeting people and you know shaking hands and, and that sort of thing. And one um, woman woman came to me. She she was tears in her eyes, and you know uh, she just like just boohooing and. Uh, she had a friend with her, and uh, I mean, she was like just completely. She couldn't really speak, you know. She was just like, and, and come to find out, she, her brother had uh, been shot by the police like like a week before, African American, um, and you know, she heard the piece, and she was just couldn't contain it. I mean, it was just like emotions, and so it was really fresh um, at that moment, and so it. it you know, those type of experiences, I, I can't 
plan for. There's no like, I mean, I, that, yeah. so I'm, I'm just happy that she was able to get something out of it and connect with it, uh, whether it's the pain or in hopefully some type of um, emotional resolution, you know, and, and just dealing with it. With it. Um, so I, I can't say exactly, uh, but, you know, the fact that she was able to connect with it and, you know, through concert classical music, you know, and uh, so that that's it means the world to me. Yeah. And I think and I think that's what really makes works like that unique, because for so long, the the concert hall, you know, both both physically and I, I guess philosophically was this space of escape, was this space where, you know, that the outside world um, didn't belong in. And, and you're, of course, uh, one of many composers who have now addressed things like police brutality through composition. What's your reaction um, to the the idea that some have, that many still have, um, that issues like these don't belong in those spaces, don't belong in the concert halls or the opera houses or wherever? Oh, gosh. You know, I think it's, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's about stories and about, and it's about culture and documenting culture you know i think as a composer that's one of my job what's my job you know and, and as artists really to document um the history and you know 100 200 years from now people will look back and say hey this happened in america because this these composers were talking about it or these artists were, were singing about it you know it's it's so we're part of the the, the culture and so no matter the the venue uh, I feel like it, it's important for artists, composers, performers, conductors to be able to um, speak about these things in in whatever venue. Uh, and so it doesn't matter, I feel, especially now, you know, it, it's important to, for us to be vocal about our individual uh, uh, convictions. Um, and yeah, so that, it's, it's important. Definitely. You mentioned um, Sphinx Connect uh, a few minutes ago, and I think I would like to um, sort of transition in, in, into talking about um, Sphinx, the Sphinx organization, the gala um, that's coming up, and everything surrounding it. Um, you know, Sphinx is a is a word, is a name uh, that uh, that Scott and I mention a lot on this podcast. You know, Scott even went to his first uh, Sphinx earlier this year. Uh, for folks who are still unfamiliar with this um, huge organization, this really impactful organization, um, how would you describe it? What is Sphinx? Family. This <laughs> is one word. It's family, man. Uh, it, it just feels like one big family reunion, and uh, so you just have a collection of of, of just amazing artists and musicians uh, from across the globe, really, and we're all doing different things, but yet to the same things in our own uh, spaces, if you will. Uh, and you know, it's like a collection. We all come together, and we're, it's like experiencing the same thing, and and, and we're like, oh. You're doing the same over here in, in uh, Mexico, or I, mm -hmm. I'm doing this over here in D.C. You know, it's the exact same thing, but in a different location. And so it, it, it's, it's really a collection uh, of, I guess, the brightest and, and, and the most talented musicians and artists. And, you know, I, whenever I go, it, it has always felt like a big family reunion. The first year I went, 
you know, I didn't know anybody, honestly, uh, other than this, my classmates uh, who I studied with at the University of Michigan. And, mm-hmm. you know, just me being that introduced me to many different people. I walked away from that conference with, you know, many friends, uh, lifelong friends. And so it, it, it was, it's an experience. Uh, and so I, I, I always look forward to it. Yeah. It's one thing to, you know, come together um, for things like Sphinx Connect, you know, that conference as um, a performing musician, someone who goes on stage and plays with the Sphinx Orchestra and and all those sorts of things. Um, But it's another thing to come from, you know, certain parts of the the field that are a little more solitary. You know, I think about uh, concert pianists and I also think about uh, composers. You know, much of your time is spent, you know, I imagine in front of a score or, or, or a computer screen. How much more impactful um, for you is uh, community uh, w- with that in mind? Is, you know, you know is, is, is attending this uh, so-called family reunion even more important considering how you spend most of your time in music? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I could very well almost be in my little, my man cave here. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, you know, most composers, we, we spend our time just in, in four walls and just sort of uh, and, and it's a very solid, solitary profession, uh, and so I cannot force myself to be, be out. You know, if it wasn't for my wife, I wouldn't. I would just be here. Like <laughs> I wouldn't even know COVID happened. You know, <laughs> uh, it's happening rather. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's important to be out and and to experience and 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 to be social. And but the question is really about community and being able to 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 have some type of connection with, with other, uh, even collaboration, if you will. But, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I, I just bring it down to, to composing. So if, when I'm writing a piece, I, I like, I don't like to write in, in a box where I'm like I'm writing and then I'm gonna send a piece and that's it, you know? No, there's a constant collaboration between me and the performer, if they're, whoever the commissioning body is, uh, whether it's a conductor or a violinist or whatever, it, it's, so that, in a way, it it strengthens uh, connections and friendship. I build friendships from that, you know, and it's trust. And from that, you know, builds out, you know, that conductor will take it to another orchestra and who will then, you know, another, another violinist or trombonist will hear my work and then they'll, they'll want to play my music. And so it's like, it grows. Um, so, um, you know, as far as, that's more of a macro view, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to community is, is, and, and uh, African-American community, I think it's important to, to, to be um, supportive of supporters uh, of our, of our if it were artists, you know, other artists, African-American artists, uh, because it's, you know, we have to be there for each other, you know, and in this, especially during this time and being able to champion each other's work uh, and, and just be there. Uh, I think it's a, that's important for sure. Yeah, that that net the networking aspect of the annual conference is, is certainly you know one of my favorite uh, things about it, and I think one of the more um, important. Uh, but of course, you know, Sphinx Connect the conference is just one of the things that happens over the course uh, of a year within the Sphinx organization. You know, something else uh, that happens uh, is actually coming up soon on uh, October fifteenth, uh, the Sphinx Gala, which is actually virtual. Um, this year because of uh, of COVID and, and, and other things. Um, and this gala is actually uh, 
going to include um, a performance of one of your works called Between Worlds. Now, first of all, is, is this a world premiere of Between Worlds? It's not. Actually, it was commissioned by the uh, uh, Urban B. Klein uh, competition. Happens every year. It's a string competition, uh, very prestigious. Uh, and they commissioned me to write a, a, a suite of solo string pieces. Uh, so I was one for solo violin, uh, viola, double bass, and cello. Mm. Uh, so, but the piece itself is um, uh, it's, it's it's one one title for four different pieces, really, and yeah. inspired by the visual or visual art of uh, Bill Trailer. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, when it comes to that title Between Worlds, you know, and, and if I was, uh, you know, pretending I was in a concert hall somewhere without access to you or your perspectives on this, I guess my assumptions would um, push me more toward the idea of code switching, you know, between worlds when it comes to <laughs> tra 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 traversing, you know, uh, everything when it comes to being a, a person of color, especially in the arts. Is there at least a hint of, of that idea embedded in this composition? Yeah, well, it it. it it, it really is. So Bill Trailer, he was born in 1853, uh, but died in 1949. So he lived a very long life and Almost saw a lot. Yeah, he was born a slave in Alabama, uh, of all places. And uh, so he lived to see, you know, the Civil War. He lived to see the Reconstruction. He lived to see Jim Crow. Uh, and and he, he, you know, he saw a lot in American culture. So I can imagine, you know, he, he living in between different, different worlds, old and new, you know, mm -hmm. black and white. Uh, and then, you know, he was born a slave. And so he uh, lived on, worked on cotton fields and so rural and, but he also moved to Montgomery or moved around to different cities. So rural and urban, you know, so he's between these different disparate worlds uh, seemingly, but, uh, and so I wanted to implant that into the piece. Uh, and so, you know, you'll hear um, many different types of moods, if you will, but it's a oh, collection of, of uh, it's still, I guess, in the character of, I, as I imagine, of this, this very uh, well, um, not, gosh, just lost my train of thought. He's he's really uh, you know this world gross you know he, he's seen a lot pretty much yeah, is what yeah. I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if any of that is um, a little personal for you, you know, because we began this conversation with your mentioning um, your own lineage that you can trace back into the late um, 19th century. Um, do you think of your own family members in relation to the person who, you know, this piece was built around? When, when we talk about um, different worlds, you know, I, I don't know if you um, have records or knowledge of family members of yours, you know, who were born into slavery, but surely, you know, someone who lived um, in 1896, I think uh, the the year that you threw out there, someone who lived during that time would experience some very similar things, you know, as they go over uh, the course of their lives, even if the plantation was not a part of it. Mm. No, it wasn't based on anybody that I, you know, I've always been really just intrigued by uh, these stories that come out of slavery and, and especially artists in general right. you know if you see his work it's so provocative but yet it has a simple simplistic 
nature to it. He was a self-taught artist. And so he used whatever he had, you know, whether it's cardboard or, uh, you know, and actually, you know what, now that I'm thinking about it here, you, uh, my dad, he, one of the things he does as a hobby is he draws and he was basically a self-taught artist. Um, so there's a connection there. Yes. You should be my therapist because there's a drawing. <laughs> my, my therapist would say that's a bad idea, but, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I want to uh, definitely shout out uh, Hannah White, who is going to be given uh, this performance, a, a phenomenal um, uh, musician. So shout out to her. Um, I wonder why you think uh, works like these between worlds is important to hear um at a Sphinx gala, you know, there are things like Beethoven sonatas that exist, you know, why, why is a piece of music like this so important to hear um, in under the umbrella um, of, a, of a gala like this for, for the Sphinx organization? Sure, sure. Well, I, it's again, it's all about the stories, man, and uh, being having um, representation of these stories. Yes, we could play both Beethoven or Mozart, and but that's not representative of um, the stories that come out of American culture. Uh, uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's important to document these stories. Um, and that's what, that's one key mission of the speech organization is, is to, to, to be uh, supporters of artists uh, and uh, black and, and Latinx uh, descent and to, to really support them in, in whatever endeavors. And so that, that means um, curating their, their stories and yeah. sharing their stories, you know what I mean? So that's, it's important. Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely want to um, give you the opportunity to, you know, plug all of your things and, and, and tell folks how they can um, uh, get in contact with you or, or, or commission you for new works. But, um, you know, I, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't uh, personally congratulate you uh, for the award that you recently got uh, from the, the Sphinx organization. I wonder if you could paint the picture of, of receiving notification that you got this Medal of Honor um, alongside a uh, what I'll call a pretty substantial uh, cash prize. What, what was <laughs> what, what was that day like for you finding out that you won? Uh, gosh, it's was surreal, man. Like I, I'm still. It, it in general, it takes a while for me to for news to sort of catch up with me. You know, mm -hmm. it happens, and then I'm like, like this blank because I, I can't. I don't know how to react to it because I'm just kind of <laughs> slow with my emotions. Um, but you know, it, it, that whole day was just me sort of like trying to grapple with the idea of, of, you know, what do I do now? I had this platform, you know, what's, what's the responsibility, responsibility of this now? Like I, I had this platform to, to, to say something, to help someone and, you know, all of these emotions and yes, yes, I'm excited that this cash prize and the, the, the recognition. Uh, but that comes with the price, you know, I have to, I'm using it now to, 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 to change and to help people uh, understand. And, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's important. Uh, I, I, yeah, man, I'm still sort of, as you can see, I'm, I'm sort of speechless, <laughs> but I still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really phenomenal. Um, how can, uh, how can people sort of uh, keep up with what you have on the horizon and, and, uh, and check out what you plan to do with this new platform, this new time, these, sure, new, these sure. new resources you have? Yeah, yeah. Well, you can find me on Instagram, Simon Composer. 
that's my handle or my website uh it's coliversimon.com and uh yeah great that's phenomenal okay. you know but but, uh, but before i let you go I, I wanted to ask you you know one thing one more thing we're at the intersection of of so much right now, COVID, you know, uh, new discussions of race, police brutality, um, unemployed musicians, unemployed people in in general, you know, um, what are your words, you know, and, and we talk about the support and really supporting um, artists, specifically artists of color. What are your words? What is your advice to the person just on the brink of, of an adventure or a new adventure in light of everything that's happening. We can't crowd the concert hall. There, there's so many things that uh, we can't do, um, but maybe there are things that we can do as, as artists during this time. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've seen so many uh, amazing concerts via online, and I'm sure you have too. It's, uh, and people have been using this, the internet and, and social media as, as a platform to, to share. And, and um, <clears throat> course that's one way uh i i i think that's is important we still have to keep that sense of uh community in that way but you know uh, one thing that i've appreciated you know is just the idea of live music being in person you know and i think we've been missing that and so um the new york philharmonic what they've been what they did is they gotten they rented a truck and they gone down to you know all five boroughs of this of, of the city, New York City, and you know they got this collection of artists, you know like a trio, string trio, and they they just went around and played, and then they left for like thirty, you know they played for like thirty minutes and then left. Well, they commissioned me to write a piece um, that was inspired by COVID, and you know, and so I wrote a piece called the Loop, or Loop is what it's called, and it's really about about the monotony of of being in and you know at home and so again it's, it's really so that experience of having live music to a community uh for however long you know that's whether it's short or, or uh, you can't really be long because you know you don't want people to gather but right um you know i think as artists you know you have to really be good stewards of your community and so like um, you know, just being able to perform for, I don't know, five minutes outside, you know, that, that, I think that does a world to people and just, it's, it's so important to kind of keep that music alive with, I don't know, a small group of people. And that's, it's important, I think. Yeah, just doing what you can, I guess, is what I'm hearing. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you, Garrett. I appreciate it. It's, it's what we black folks have always done, I guess, doing what we can with what we got. That's right, sir. That's right. <laughs> Carlos, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you. You know, I think I saw, Scott, I think the last time, uh, the last Sphinx, the one we were at in February, um, I saw uh, Carlos Los, as he told me to call him. I saw Los um, over in the distance and, you know, how crowded it gets. I couldn't get over there to him. But, um, yeah, when when he describes Sphinx as a family, um, 
it's it's just that. And, you know, full disclosure, you know, Sphinx gets uh, plenty of critiques. I'm sure Alpha and the whole team over there are familiar with that. But at the end of the day, the people who, you know, uh, go to Sphinx Connect every year and, and network and commune, there, there's really, you know, nothing like it. Wouldn't you be sad if the Sphinx uh, Connect you went to this past February um, is the last one because of COVID and, you know. It was a good time and I met a lot of great people. Mm-hmm. And what is, I mean, even this virtual game, you're going to be involved with that, right? I'm, I'll, I'll just be attending. I'm not involved. But, okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, what is even, is that even going to be the, the same? Is that going to be good enough, you know, to get that interaction that, like what you get at the actual convening? Well, good enough. I don't know. The same. Absolutely not. You know, that's that's the thing. But what is the choice? Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about so many times, you know, I'm thinking about Lee Kuntz right now uh, over the Gateways Music Festival. You know how he talked about making a way out of no way. Yeah. That's what we do, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, let's get into this triloquy. As you probably could have guessed by this moment, I have decided in 2020 to run for president. All right, Scott. So we had a uh, pretty, um, I don't, I don't want to say a heated conversation, but a very energized conversation concerning what I planned on bringing into the triloquy today. Oh, now I remember. So we started again with a quote from the late Shirley Chisholm. Let's, let's reprise that. I cannot believe that this administration would have ever been elected four years ago if we had known then what we know today. But we are entering, we are entering a new era in which we must, as Americans, demand stature and size in our national leadership. Leadership which is open and leadership which is receptive to the problems of all Americans. Now, I think that phrase, all Americans, is very important, all Americans. I got um, my ballot for president uh, in the mail, and when I opened it, alongside opening uh, the notification that my health care benefits were, you know, running out in a couple days, you know, at, uh, at the end of the month, you know, something in me just sort of snapped. And I thought to myself, Well, obviously, for me, voting uh, for Trump is not something I'm interested in doing. Is voting for Biden something that's going to directly benefit me? Now, we're on the heels again in this moment when I'm in in, in my mailbox of me thinking about, you know, this union at your job, which hopefully, you know, will offer so many protections, maybe even artistic and and content uh, autonomy uh, for you guys. But, you know, how I just missed the boat, even though that, you know, I was a part of the development of that. um, I think, uh, you know, that on top of the fact that I think my termination gives the need for that strength, you know, um, and for me to not be the beneficiary of that, even though I am, you know, a, a part of the other side of it, you know, it, it made me think about that with voting. You know, is voting for Biden um, actually going to benefit uh me and then of course you know uh, in Minnesota Kanye West actually made the ballot and we were talking about me saying well fuck it I'm just gonna vote for Kanye West you know because fuck all of this but you know I I don't I don't know if I'm there but uh, I think the hard pill Scott that so many people have to swallow is that the idea of voting for Biden is not going to benefit me either so I'm not going to vote that is more pervasive than people are willing to admit I think Mm -hmm. so um, I understand <laughs> that, you know, 
I understand why, you know, you believe that, you know, voting for one candidate is going, you know, to be so important in the long run. You know, I, I, I get that. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm throwing my vote away. I'm not saying I'm not voting for Joe Biden. What I am saying is it's hard for me to, in good faith, even participate in a system at this point under some promise of it working out when there is no evidence of that. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I do. I do. And I disagree. Go ahead. I, uh, I, I think that the change that you want and that people of color want, that everybody wants, if, if you throw your vote to Kanye, which is, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to vote. That's 100% on you. But <clears throat> uh, again, I think that the kind of change that you're after, instead of being maybe eight or 12 years, you know, away, okay, is going to be not in your lifetime. When I when I think about you know people's. Uh, justifications, the reasons they give millennials and other younger folks to, you know, hold their nose and vote for a candidate that they don't believe will do anything for them. Uh, I've seen, well, um, you know, you're not voting for Biden, you're voting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement, you know. Unfortunately, she's gone already. And, you know, she will be replaced by Trump. So that's not the reason. You know, other people, ha you know, have said, you know, this is uh, important to save our democracy, you know. And when I hear that, I think about these growing tent villages around the Twin Cities because folks can't pay their rent. You said they're starting to pop up over um, in the park where you um, walk radar, you know. Yeah, in the last couple of weeks, it's gone from four to 16, I'd say. And, yeah. and, and, and my purview, you know, we are already living in a democracy that does not work. So I just don't want, and I think I said this here before, I'll say it again, I don't want Biden um, and Harris getting the White House to cool anyone down. Um, we, we were talking earlier also, you know, about this Wagner week. I, I, I put them out there on Instagram a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in connection with this, I just wanted to acknowledge that there is actually one little excerpt of music uh, by Wagner that I appreciate. At the end of the ring cycle, there's this beautiful chorale that while you're listening to it, you're seeing the world being destroyed. That's what I want at the end of the day. Maybe not the world being destroyed, but this system that doesn't work for so many of us, you know, uh, to to get out of here. Uh, again, Shirley Chisholm did not say some Americans; she said all Americans, and that's something that I am going to, um, to 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 really live with. And I hope that you will live with that and think about, you know, even if you feel like uh, participating in this system, this voting system is is your best way of making a change. I hope you'll still think about the folks who will never see the benefits of of any of this you know i want a reason to celebrate that music of wagner's in which the world is being destroyed i'll give it to y'all then here that this this is this is my deal scott i will say something nice about wagner when we burn all this shit down